today we continue our series on David, who many have called the greatest king Israel has ever seen. We spent the whole summer on David, so you might be getting a little fatigued by this. Uh, my wife told me this week, Brian, I love you and I love your preaching, but I'm tired of hearing about David. Uh, just what the pastor wants to hear from his wife, right? Uh, so if that's you, if you're a little worn out, don't worry, just two more weeks to go. And today's story is pretty incredible, so hang in there. Uh, last week we heard Christine share how David wanted to make a house for God, but instead God promises to make for David a house. From that point, David wins a bunch of battles for Israel, turning his enemies into servants. He shows kindness to the grandson of King Saul, Mephibosheth. But then David sins with Bathsheba. Many of you will know this story, but the shorthand version is David sees a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop, calls her to his palace, gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover it up. He fails and has the woman's husband murdered, so no one will know what happened. People do find out, though, and the baby ends up dying. It's an awful situation, and David is suffering the consequences of his actions. Then the scriptures say, some time passed. David is probably in his mid-50s, and David continues to suffer, this time from strife among his children. Let's get a little background before we hear today's scripture. David's oldest child is Amnon. We would assume he is the next in line to be king. But before that happens, Amnon commits a horrible sin. He has fallen in love with his half-sister Tamar and ends up violating her. As strange as it may seem to us today, in ancient times, the only right thing to do is to marry the girl. Amnon won't do it, though. He kicks her out, and we hear that he has a very great loathing for her. His loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. She is destroyed, weeping, and with ashes on her forehead, an ancient sign of grief. She runs to her full brother, Absalom, who takes care of her, and now they both hate the future king, the half-brother, Amnon. Two full years pass, and Absalom has a big party. He invites everyone to a sheep-shearing festival. Everyone is going except for King David. Absalom says, that's okay, Dad. Just send Amnon and all your sons in your place. And David agrees. Amnon is at the party with all his brothers when the servants of Absalom murder the future king. The place is in chaos. Everyone flees. Rumors are flying that all of the king's sons have been murdered by Absalom. And Absalom, he takes off fleeing to another country. David is heart-stricken by the death of Amnon and also the loss of Absalom. Three more years pass until Joab convinces David to let Absalom return, but David refuses to see him or let him into the palace. Then two more years pass, and David finally forgives his son for the murder of David's eldest son. Now our scripture for today, Absalom has spent the last four years stealing the hearts of the people, promising a better, fairer country than even David could provide. At the sound of a trumpet, Absalom announces that he is now the rightful king of Israel. This is 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 through 26. Hear now God's word. A messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the Israelites have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him at Jerusalem, Get up, 
Let us flee, or there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Hurry, or he will soon overtake and bring disaster down upon us and attack the city with the edge of the sword. The king's officials said to the king, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king decides. So the king left, followed by all his household, except ten concubines whom he left behind to look after the house. The king left, followed by all the people, and they stopped at the last house. All his officials passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you also coming with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us while I go wherever I can? Go back and take your kinsfolk with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. David said to Ittai, Go then, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. The whole country wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king crossed the Wadi Kadron, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Abiathar came up, and Zadok also, with all the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see it, both it and the place where it remains. But if he says, I take no pleasure in you, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. And I invite you to join in our prayer preparation. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I heard a story this week that I can't stop thinking about. It's about a man who bought a house for $10,000 in New Orleans. This was before Hurricane Katrina hit, but Oscar paid so little because he got the home through a government program. The city was seizing rundown properties and selling them for pennies on the dollar. Things were going well. The property was a duplex, so they fixed it up. Uh, they lived upstairs and rented out the lower portion of the home. It went so well, they ended up buying another home and doing the same thing. That's when the trouble began. Their tenant called them complaining. They had just received an eviction notice in the mail, so they called Oscar to complain. The problem was Oscar didn't send the eviction notice. What in the world was going on? Turns out the eviction notice had come from Mr. Dowell, the former owner of the property. Tracy, Oscar's wife, said she thought it was just a misunderstanding, that Mr. Dowell was probably confused about the state seizing his property. After trying to explain things, they wound up in court with Mr. Dowell. The judge asked Mr. Nathaniel Dowell for proof he owned the property. He didn't have any, so the case was dismissed. 
Things went back to normal for a year or so before Hurricane Katrina hit, destroying the home they had spent uh, money fixing up and renting out. They had to do, do this again and invest their money. The first floor was in shambles and the roof had been ripped off. The contractors started rebuilding it though, but that's when weird things started happening. A hammer went missing, then reappeared the next day. Items were moved around, then a line for Oscar and Tracy was crossed. Yellow caution tape was haphazardly draped across the entire work site. They went to the city to check the records, and when the people there heard what had happened, they sighed and told them to cross-reference their names. The same thing had been happening to people all across the city. Mr. Dow wasn't anyone special, but he was very angry. He owned multiple properties across the city that were seized for failure to pay taxes. And when the house he lived in was sold at auction, he went crazy. He chased Brad, the man that bought the property, away with a baseball bat. When Brad returned with the police, Mr. Dowell was arrested for trespassing. You'd think that would be the end of the, of the story, but it wasn't. A few days later, Brad went back to his newly purchased property, and Mr. Dowell was there again. When police arrived, Nathaniel Dowell was not arrested this time because he had a restraining order against Brad. But how could that be? Brad didn't do anything. Mr. Dowell had just been arrested for trespassing a few days before, and Brad owned the property. He went to the judge that had signed the restraining order to understand what had happened, but the judge said she never signed a restraining order, and neither had any other judge there. Something was fishy. The restraining order was faked. Nathaniel Dowell was a self-taught paralegal. He was a notary with his own seal, which made things seem official. He could file what's called a quit claim. Mr. Dow would file it, and it would take hours and hours with attached legal fees to clarify that Brad owned the home, not Nathaniel Dowell. Mr. Dow was getting more and more bold with his claims, too. At one point, he went to Oscar's house in the middle of the day and locked Oscar's mother out of the house, saying, he lived there, not her. When the police showed up, both of them had paperwork that showed some evidence that they owned the home, with Mr. Dowell's being totally faked. The police, though, couldn't tell, so they said it was a civil matter, not a police matter. This kind of scheming continued literally for years, with tens of thousands of dollars spent on legal fees and awkward encounters with this man claiming to own properties that were sold to others years before. It continued until one day Mr. Dowell messed with the wrong people, the feds. Uh, he applied for federal money to fix his property, but Mr. Dowell didn't technically own the property. Uh, that's a federal crime, and he was indicted for it. He was found guilty and is serving 10 years in prison for what he'd done. Those affected by Mr. Dowell's schemes are grateful for the reprieve, but they believe it's only a matter of time before he is released, and they may have to deal with this all over again. What a terrible thing to have to go through. You buy your home, but someone just won't let you have it. They trick and connive their way into getting you into trouble. They even kick your mother out of her home. For as bad as that might be, though, I imagine it was even worse for King David. He was kicked out of his home, yes, 
unable to return to it, but it wasn't because of some random stranger. It was his own son that was the cause of it. First, David is promised that he would be king of Israel, and he has to wait decades. Then he is finally made king, but his kingdom is divided north and south. Then God promises to make his children and grandchildren kings too, but his house is a mess. His oldest son rapes his half-sister and gets murdered by an understandably enraged brother. When David and his murderous son make up, the son usurps the throne and declares himself king. There are several stories of King David we don't have time to get to, but one of them is David showing kindness to the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. I've known that story for years, and a couple of weeks ago I was talking to John about it. I said, yeah, I'd love to tell the story of Mephibosheth. I tried again, Mephibosheth. I couldn't say it right. Uh, I've never struggled to say the name Mephibosheth. But there I was making myself look like a fool in front of John. If you follow the story carefully, though, even Mephibosheth, who David showed absolute loyalty to, is said to have betrayed David. He is in a dire situation with only his most loyal servants and soldiers, some family, and very little else loyal to him. Despite being king and bringing other countries to their knees, David is helpless when it comes to keeping his own home and family intact. We see this two different times. First, when David's oldest son violates his half-sister, David is angry but doesn't do anything about it. The second time is with Absalom. Just before today's scripture, it describes what Absalom was doing after David had forgiven him for murdering his son. It says Absalom got a chariot and horses. Uh, That's like a 17-year-old getting a Ferrari for his birthday. Then he has 50 men run ahead of his chariot. He has his own posse traveling with him. In ancient times, when people had a dispute, they would go to the city gate for a judgment That is, if there was anyone there to judge, they didn't have a courtroom, they had a city gate. David, as king, could make these judgments, but he's either too busy or maybe doesn't know there are these disputes. Absalom, though, he knows, and he hangs out at the gate, engages these people having arguments, and tells them, you know, if I were king, I could rule on this situation. I could rule in your favor. He tells the people, what they want to hear. So they think more of him and less of his father, David. By the time David realizes what's happening, it's too late. The hearts of the people have gone after Absalom, and it looks like the country is in full-on rebellion against David. The softness of David toward his children has led to his downfall. As bad as things are in that moment, David shows incredible character, He flees because it's smarter to run and fight another day. Uh, But as he sees the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the prize artifact of the Jewish people, carrying it out of Jerusalem, he stops them. Though it is a symbol of God's very presence with the people, David doesn't whine and complain. He doesn't think of all he is losing. He simply says, send it back. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and the place where it stays. God's presence with the people is more important than my status, my kingdom, and my life. What an incredible moment. David sees 
beyond himself. He sees a future after he is gone. He is humble about his role in this world. I would love to be more like David in this regard. I have to be honest, though, I am nowhere near. Uh, Just the other day, I was outside biking around town with my boys, Davey and Hal. Halloran just learned to ride a bike two weeks ago, which is a big deal. The whole world is opening up to him. So the three of us are headed to the bank on our bikes because Halloran had read 10 books on his own, and the bank had a summer reading program, read 10 books, get 10 bucks. Uh, I wish they had a summer adult reading program, read a million books, get a million books, uh, bucks, but that's another, another issue. Uh, so we were on our way back, and we had to cross the uh, Hillsdale Avenue to get back home, and the traffic is just going and going out here at this intersection. Finally, someone decides they are going to stop and hold up the traffic behind them to let us cross. Great, we start moving along, and Halloran falls almost immediately, It's super cute because he's not hurt, but the traffic is starting to line up because we are taking forever. Finally, we get across, and as we are standing in front of the church, someone pulls over. She's telling me how she has two kids. She's a teacher at Pascack Valley High School, and one day my kids might have her as a teacher, and then she gets down to business. She says that her kids took a bike safety program and that they told the kids they need to walk their bikes across the intersection, not ride them. And how does Brian respond standing in front of the church with his name on the front of it? (laughs) Am I gracious and kind? No, I tell her, actually, the rule says bicycles are vehicles, so really, he's supposed to be biking on the street. Now, that is absolutely true. My five-year-old is supposed to be on the shoulder of the road, not on the sidewalk. He's also supposed to make a left-hand turn from the middle of the street. But I love my children, and I love them being alive in the great state of New Jersey. So we don't do it like that. We bike like pedestrians. So this high school teacher then was absolutely right about what she said. She was even trying to be really nice about sharing this safety tip, but I took it as an insult, and I threw the book at her. Not literally. uh, I emphasized the rules instead of receiving what she said gracefully. Was I responding with humility like King David? Did I see my place in the world as equal with others and trusting God in, in the midst of life? No didn't. So the goal then is to be ready with that kind of response. The goal is to be so ready in the small things in life that when you lose your house, when your children rebel against you, when your friends turn on you, you are ready with grace. Perhaps one of the best known stories about that kind of grace shown to others is the story of the prodigal son. Really, it should be the story of the prodigal's father. When the son loses his fortune and destroys his life, he comes back to his father looking to restore his status. And what does the father do? He runs to his son, embraces him, gives him a ring and coat, and throws a huge party. Dad can't help but rejoice that his lost son is found. 
He stands ready to forgive and accept his son back at the drop of a hat. There's a father, Frank, who gets this. He knows how to show grace no matter what circumstances surround him. Frank's son was on the streets of Denver hooked on drugs. So Frank went looking for him. He contacted a homeless advocate who pointed him to Pastor Jerry, whose church serves the homeless in the heart of the city. Frank joined him one morning, and he saw his son there. He walked up to his son, who was stumbling because of the heroin he had used. The son turned away from his father. He didn't want to be seen in that condition, but Frank didn't care. He grabbed his son and hugged him. For the next week, Frank stayed with his son on the streets. He slept on the riverbank, grew a beard, ate handouts during the day, and swatted rats away at night. He followed his son into the hospital when he got sick, and he told him, Son, if you die, your mother and I will die with you. We might still be breathing, but we will die with you. That, my friends, is love. A love that transcends our circumstances, transcends the loss of a house or family or status. It is godly love that is filled with grace for whatever may come our way. Learn that grace and hold on to it. So in every step of life, you can say as David did, let the Lord do what seems good to him. Amen.